Welcome to Diary of a Crowdfunded Film, proudly in collaboration with Brick Studios. I'm Jose Pusella. Join me as I take you on this audio journey with Heath Davis on the making of his new crowdfunded film, Christmas. Welcome to the second installment of Diary of a Creative from Oz to NZ, celebrating individuals and their love of the arts and the careers they're carving out of this love and anything in between. As always, I'm your host, Jose, and I'll forego my usual intro because I'm flummoxed at the individual who has agreed to this interview with little old me today. I've decided to pepper my pithy puns, sounds like a rejected episode of Peppa Pig, throughout the interview for your continued displeasure. So last week, we kicked things off with filmmaker and juggernaut music director, Nick Kozakis. This week, I catch up with another alum of the School of Music Videos with over 25 to his name, including the ARIA-nominated John Butler Trio video, only one from 2014. In 2016, the critical success of his psychological thriller debut feature, Hounds of Love, rapidly drew the attention of Hollywood, leading to the then tricenarian Subiaco Local to follow up with his sophomore outing, directing the action sci-fi movie Extinction, released worldwide on Netflix in 2018. Most recently, He directed episodes five and six of the highly anticipated Australian-American co-produced Netflix miniseries Clickbait, released August 25th, 2021, currently still topping charts. And when he's not doing donuts in the ATV gator at his parents' sheep farm, he's soon to find himself sitting in the director's chair for a third time, calling action on the latest Billy Bob Thornton and Robin Wright vehicle, based on the novel by David Joy titled Where All Lights Tend to Go. Thank you so much for your time and for joining me today, Ben Young. Thank you so much for having me, Jose. I've got to say, I was pretty impressed with the amount of research you've done there. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much, mate. Before I continue, I just want to get some housekeeping out of the way. If you enjoyed our last episode as much as Nick Kozakis enjoys Futurama, Velour and smashing at juggernaut hits from the music clips of the Tones and I and Masked Wolf, then please check us out on Facebook or Twitter at Diary of a Crowd F1. Please also subscribe and reshare the episode so the momentum for this podcast and Heath's film Christmas continues throughout the production's hiatus in this ever-stretching Sydney lockdown. Now, Ben, I really appreciate this opportunity and for this virtual tete-a-tete, especially as you prep to jet set for further success. That's my rock set pun for the day. Um, I love rock set. I saw them live once. Oh, really? (laughs) Where was that? Yep. Uh, That was uh, at the Perth Arena. It was fantastic. Oh, brilliant. Um, I just wanted to know, because I've got some questions about the production, but at the moment, time-wise, when do you fly out? Um, so it's Thursday today and I leave on Sunday night. Okay. And what's the destination? Can you disclose that? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm landing in Atlanta, Georgia, and we're going to be shooting, you know, in a small town outside of there somewhere, Mm -hmm. you know, mountain-esque. Right. And again, this is relating to where all lights tends to go. Yep. Okay. Um, look, and the other question I really had, which is very pertinent, do you roll or fold your clothing when packing? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think I tend to fold. Um, yeah, I fold. I think you can fit more in. All right. Lovely. I, I agree. I think I do a combination of both. Um, I find that works. Yep. I probably do. I probably do a combination of both too. Oh, what I want to do is let's go back, way back in the time. Well, not that far back, but I wanted to highlight you directed Dancing Joe video clip for draft. Um, I only learned this this week. Oh, Yeah. I'm a massive fan of Rapunzel and Jimmy Ricard. Like, I loved Jimmy Ricard. I also did Bali Party for Draft. Right, okay. Now, the that you know, that Mickey Mouse-esque, the Lonesome Ghost short, that's exactly what the vibe that I got from that video clip. Was that concept yep. conceived by yourself or was it a collaboration between yourself and Draft? Oh, look, 
It's more of a collaboration draft. Um, he, uh, or Paul, um, he has a very clear vision of what he wants. And so he kind of came to me with a concept and I did my best to get inside his head and see what we could um, do with it. I love that. But it yeah, really- you know, it's, it's different working on every music video with every artist because like Paul knows exactly what he wants. And so it's really the director's job to try and, you know, realize that vision is close to him. And, you know, um, other artists are different, you know. So when John uh, Butler came to me for the only one video, for example, he just said, I just want to do a video with zombies. And then um, I went off and I wrote the concept and, you know, pretty much did did it the way that I wanted. And he was just happy for me to go off and, and do that. So, yeah, it's different every single time. And then there's other music videos where I, uh, you know, bands come to me. Um, if anyone's seen any of my Voltaire Twin videos, um, Animalia is sort of the music video I made for the Voltaire Twins. And that is what sort of made other bands start approaching me. And I did another one for them that went semi-viral called Solaris. And they are, um, they're much more of the school of, they just came to me and would say, what do you want to do? <laughs> and I'd, uh, I'd come up with all of it. You know, of course, float it, float it by them. But um, yeah. That's also what I, I found when I was speaking with um, Nick Kozakis. Yep. As I mentioned in the intro, the family home is a sheep farm northeast of Perth. Um, yep. Look, I'm sure the days of Where did of you find that information? I'm just blown away. Uh Look, I looked at so many videos, read so many interviews, and I've just, yeah. I hope this doesn't come across as a pastiche. <laughs> um, no, I'm good. just trying to I'm do impressed. my best that I can. I'm very flattered that someone spent so much time reading about me. <laughs> well, I just want this to, I really want this to be enjoyable for you and for, you know, whoever's listening to us. So look, I'm sure the days of riding the Gator are few and far between with your hectic schedule, but do you feel that you're able to still visit the family home as much mm-hmm. as you'd like these days? Yeah, I mean, I was probably last up there... A week and a half ago, um, I go up there quite a lot. Um, I, I'll probably spend my last night in Western Australia before I head off um, up there as well, because it's only an hour. Perth being as small as it is, the farm's only an hour out of the city, and I live in the heart of the CBD. And so um, it's kind of wonderful just to get in your car, drive for an hour, and then end up at your folks' place and stand on the back porch and see no other sign of civilization. So I get up there quite a lot. You can go off the grid very easily in a short distance. Absolutely. Yep. I love that. Most of the interviews that you've done for Hounds of Love, you've mentioned that your mother is a crime novelist. And mm-hmm. from a pile of books she was using for her research, you took one on female serial killers and the idea for Hounds of Love spawned. Um, yep. So, you know, inspiration strikes in the most unlikely of places. I wanted to know if and how your mother's profession as a writer perhaps influenced the awakening of your creative path. It's actually really, really quite a funny story because um, it was the opposite. Uh, I, I wrote my first feature film script when I was 15 years old. And when I say movie script, I mean, I wrote 110 pages, but it wouldn't qualify as a movie script's asshole, I don't think. <laughs> but um, nonetheless, it was something that I always wanted to do. And um, and then mum only picked up the pen when she turned 40. And uh, she had me really young. So I was an adult. I was already in film school by the time she she decided to start writing. So, um, you know, she was always a creative person, played the piano, took acting classes when I was really young. Um, and I guess she always encouraged me to follow, you know, um, follow the arts if that's what I wanted to do. But um, at the time I started pursuing it, um, I was really pursuing it before she was. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, look, I love that it was championed in your house. Yeah, it was very much. So my, my dad is an engineer and um, he, he and, you know, really successful engineer. And um, 
he was really great in the sense that he just like, you know, I, and he's got his own firm. And so I always wondered like, Ooh, is there pressure to go and take this over? Not that I have the marks to be an engineer. And, um, and he just said, no, don't do this. You have to do something you like. And um, that always really stuck with me because, um, you know, you don't want to work for money. You want to kind of not look at work as work. And the thing that I can truly say about filmmaking is if um, I wasn't fortunate enough to, you know, be able to do it as a full-time career, I'd still be doing it as, as a hobby. So if I ended up teaching or doing, you know, any of the other things that I considered doing, um, I'd probably be writing short films on the weekend and, you know, spending all my money on camera gear and going off and just making stuff with my buddies. It speaks to your passion. Um, and look, from the power of words, nouns and verbs, that's a really terrible imitation of me trying to do a quote from Jurassic 5, um, yeah. to the almost religious-like experience arising from intercut images and sounds projected upon the silver screen. Do you recall the mm -hmm. first film you saw in the cinema? And if so, is there a particular scene or image from that film that still echoes in your memory to this day? I, I don't remember specifically the first film that I saw at the cinema, but we as a family did go fairly often when I was young. Um, so I certainly remember seeing Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade at the cinema, and that would have been late 80s. So I would have been pretty young then. I also saw Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and Dances with Wolves. And um, so they're the, they're the first ones I really remember. I do have a vague um, memory of going to see Pinocchio, when I was very young, I think that Disney used to re-release their classics theatrically once in a while. And um, I vaguely remember Correct. going to Fremantle and, and seeing um, Pinocchio on the big screen. Um, but no, it was just always something that I, um, I just loved. And I don't re recall the first time I saw Star Wars, but that has been a lifelong obsession of mine. I've been obsessed with, I don't remember a time in my life where I wasn't obsessed with Star Wars. So right. um you know, that was obviously something that I got shown when I was really, really young. Um, I was a little bit too young to have caught that theatrically, but um, I do remember I have a distinct uh, image of um, <coughs> mum and dad pre-ordering um, Return of the Jedi on VHS when it was released. And, you know, and I had my best buddy over and um, and we watched that and that would have been probably 1985 or, or something like that. So, um, yeah. Uh, it's lovely. The uh, and you know the canon of Star Wars, it spans generations, um, and mm -hmm. I think it'll just continue on. I've never been a devout, I guess, follower. My personal favorite to this date is um, the one by Rian Johnson. Ah, yes, yes. I know it wasn't that was actually my least favorite. That's I actually. Love <laughs> I loved the last one, which, what was it? Rise of Skywalker? Was that the last one? Um, I think it was. Yeah. I mean, that was critically destroyed and I loved it. To me, it just felt like Star Wars and it had that dark edge to it um, that I always remember liking. I, I really enjoyed it. And I got pleasantly surprised by Solo. Um, I don't know why I stayed away from that given the reviews. And then when I finally put it on, when it was released, um, uh, you know, on on streamers, I watched it and I just went with it and loved it. Yeah. It just had the, the fun and the the campness of the originals, and um, yeah, yeah, that was that was that was very enjoyable. Um, I wanted to jump to Hounds of Love momentarily. Um, I'm going to sure. preface this by saying there are a plethora of interviews about Hounds of Love by much more talented interviewers than myself, and I urge you. Oh, all I don't to find know about that. I think you're doing really well. <laughs> I appreciate it, but I just wanted to focus really on the casting of. Dale Kerrigan, aka Stephen Curry, uh, yep. as John White, yep. um, the yep. depraved serial killer, completely devoid of empathy. Um, yep. The casting choice was inspired 
but his portrayal is so brutal. Um, and it reminded me of Robin Williams' performance in One Hour Photo. Huge inspiration. That film was a huge inspiration. And so was um, um, Foxcatcher with Steve Carell. Now, that one I didn't catch. Oh, so good. So, I'll so have to good. Watch that. Masterful movie. But look, I wish I could take the credit for um, suggesting Steve. Um, I, I actually wrote the role with someone else in mind, and that actor, um, he just passed. He just didn't want to do it. And I was right. sort of not for six. I was like, oh, my God. So I came up with a, a bunch of names with the casting director of The Usual Suspects, and then it was our wonderful casting director, Anusha, who um, suggested um, Steve Curry. She said that he was really um, looking for something darker, and it was then I just jumped straight to One Hour Photo and to Foxcatcher, and I thought, oh, my God, so many of these comedic actors, they're just so great when they um, jump into a dramatic role, and knowing that Steve has read the script, you know, somehow he got his hands on it. I still mm. don't to this day know how. <laughs> um, <laughs> and really responded to it, well, wouldn't it be awesome to work with an actor who just really wants the part? Plus, um, you know, there's so many benefits uh, to having someone who's so likable playing a character like that. Because, you know, when I was getting ready to make the movie, I was just terrified because, you know, people don't hitchhike anymore. It's very rare. I don't think anyone would say hitchhiking is a good idea. But at the time the film was set, it was um, a very common occurrence. And I don't yes. know if a contemporary audience necessarily remembers that it was a common occurrence. And so I was absolutely terrified that the audience wouldn't buy um, Ashley Cummings' character getting in the car. And I thought then, you know, when Anusha suggested Steve, I thought, well, who wouldn't get in this car with Stephen Curry? You know, so that was um, a big uh, a big thing that happened, um, you know, as to why I, I cast him. And that said, he was so generous and he auditioned for the role um, and he just he he earned it. He did such a good audition and he's such a nice guy. He's just such a lovely, lovely guy. The the main question I had is um, how important was it for you to support and nurture Stephen's comedic nature on set? and let him perhaps even goof around between takes so that he could recharge emotionally to get into that necessary psychological headspace. Look, I mean, Steve has just got such a lovely approach, which I wish all actors had, and he just calls it pretendies, you know? So he, <laughs> he, doesn't, do, he, he doesn't do the method or anything like that. And he knew that the material that we were shooting, I mean, there's, there's not even a, a, a smile in that movie, let alone no, 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 no. A, you know, a light moment. The whole thing is heavy, heavy, heavy. Um, you know, I watched Nitram last night, actually, and even that got a couple of laughs in places from the audience. Wow. And I, I don't recall one ever happening in Hounds of Love. I can and tell you it didn't only because I rewatched it last night uh, for oh this God, interview. And, uh, um, and uh, Steve, it's, it's fantastic, Steve. but yes, it is, you know, there are points where it's just really hard to watch. And as a father of two children, um, especially a preteen and a teen, it's really hard uh, to watch. So you'll forgive yeah. me if I skip through some. <laughs> some no, no, scenes. no worries. But what, what was important for me is just that everybody did remember that it was pretendies and, and it wasn't real, you know, and obviously there were moments where it was harder on set than, than other moments, but um, it was great to have Steve there and whip out the ukulele between takes or between setups and Beautiful. keep the mood light. But where he is so gifted, I think, I think, I mean, he's an incredibly smart guy mm. and he knew when the time to lighten the mood was yes. and when to, you know, um, 
set the tone to help the other actors get into their uh, headspaces. So, um, yeah, he, he's just great. I'd cast him in everything if I could. And look, that's perfectly answered the question because I was thinking back to one hour photo with Mark Romanek and Robin Williams because in the special features, there's a section where he he allows also Robin Williams to, he needs those outbursts at times to just kind of, for him, it was about, look, my soul has gone so dark. I need to top up that cup yep. with some happiness and then I can go back to this. Um, look, yep. the Venice screening for Hounds of Love took place September 2016. You shared the next yep. morning your work to find over 90 missed calls on your mobile. Um, yep. Then fast forward five months to February 2017, where while probably still processing the surrealness of everything, you now find yep. yourself in Serbia on the pre-production of a $20 million film called Extinction with Michael yep. Pena and Izzy Kaplan. It's yep. crazier than the slogan for the infamous 90s Pantene ad with Rachel Hunter. Do you remember yeah. that slogan? <laughs> I can't remember the slogan. It, was, what is it, it won't happen overnight, but it will happen. Oh, but, but it will in this happen. case, yes. exactly. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but, it was really surreal. I don't think anybody, no one less than myself, expect more than myself, expected um, Hounds of Love to get the response that it did because it was such a little tiny film with no giant international movie stars in it. And so we, I was, you know, really, really flattered. And um, I just ended up being caught in a wave that was bigger than I knew how to navigate or... Um, or handle and you know literally overnight I had some of the best agents in the world and managers representing me I all of a sudden I had a lawyer and you know um and then I was getting flown to Beverly Hills and I'd I'd never been to LA as an adult and um you know I'm getting flown there to meet with some of the biggest you know Oscar-winning producers in the world and um and Extinction I was amazed that it happened so quickly I went to LA in yeah, I think it was very early January. It was like the 2nd of January, 2017 for what I thought was a script development meeting. And I never left. I, I went, right. you know, straight from um, LA to Belgrade and was there for five months or something. And then, um, yeah, and made extinction. So it was um, a real shock to the system. Um, and I, I'm glad I did it. But um, yeah, it was it was a real challenge. <laughs> well, see, the reason I kind of prefaced all that and you know, bad puns and my failed attempts at humor aside, I to to go back to the quote um, and the specific quote from an interview that you had with Scream Realms Guillermo Troncosco in April yep. 2020 was, "I was riding this tidal wave that I didn't know how to control." Um, right. I wanted yep. to know: Are you able to look back at that moment now and describe how you managed to keep your head afloat? and not get chewed up by the Hollywood machine? Yeah, I mean, I came very close to getting chewed up, um, but I just realised that, like, you know, at the end of the day, everybody does have the same goal. Everybody wants to make a a good movie. And it was, and I just thought, like, this is, it's just different making a movie over here to what it is in Australia. So, like, I mean, in Australia, I didn't have to get any locations approved. I mean, you know, legally you do, but there was no one above me saying, I need you to present, you know, a pitch on the look of the movie or Mm -hmm. anything like that. You know, I just got to do it um, the way that I wanted. And the thing about um, making a, a studio film is you have to justify every single decision that you're making. And, and you often have people argue against you, you know, and, um, and I just wasn't used to that. And so I just accepted the fact that like, well, this isn't my money. Like this is, this is a product that someone else is financing. So I have to do my best to work with them. And, um, 
and that often meant doing things that I didn't necessarily want to do mm-hmm. or accepting things that I didn't necessarily want done. And, um, and yeah, yeah. I mean, the movie that I was trying to make is very different to the one that um, was released, but, you know, I'm at, I'm at peace with that now. And, um, and I think that, you know, I learned a lot of lessons along the way. So, yeah. I'm sure and you I don't, did. I don't, I don't, I don't hate the film. There's a lot in the movie that I still really like. And, um, and I wouldn't swap the experience for, for anything, if that makes sense. No, it does. The question that I was curious about, because I'm sure that there would have been a lot of second guessing going on when you're creating a product that isn't for you, um, but and it was someone else's money. And you mentioned in that same interview with Screen Realm, you know, imposter syndrome. Um, yep. So I was curious now, 2021, you're about to notch a third feature on your belt in Hollywood, no less. Do you find it easier to accept your accomplishments because of your abilities and work ethics rather than luck? Um, I don't know. You know, like the other day, I uh, my phone started ringing and I saw Billy Bob Thornton's name flashing on the front of it. And you still have a moment where you go, oh, my God, he's going to think I'm such an idiot or, you know, whatever. Um, I get and it. so, you know, I, I still have it. Um, but the good news is I'm really glad that I did clickbait. I've done another big TV show since, which isn't out yet. And, um, and you know, and I survived extinction. And so I, I have more faith in myself that, like, right, I haven't yet made a total failure. Um, so that's good. Um, but now, you know, the thing is, like, the, the more you work, the, the harder it gets in a way because, like, as your career goes like this, suddenly you're working with much more experienced actors and much more experienced crew. And so it's, it's always hard. And so, you know, if I'm being perfectly honest going into this one, it's like, you know, Robin Wright and Billy Bob Thornton, who are both absolutely lovely, generous people, mm. they know more than me. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it's less about being impost- an imposter now. It's more about being an idiot, <laughs> if that makes sense, you know, and um, yeah, and and doing things that they think are stupid and um, because, you know, that would be devastating to have someone like that who I respect so much or, you know, think I was a fool. And so, um, yeah, so that fear is always, always still there. Uh, and, and it's common. I think we, we all go through it. I mean, I'm going through it when I was prepping for this and I went through it before I started this. Just what you're oh. going through. Um, so, you know, I'm sure, and you're very open. And I think that's what's going to be, in my experience in these 27 minutes of having spoken to you, I do appreciate your openness and candidness. Oh, um, thank you. No, I'm I'm open probably to a fault. <laughs> then that makes you know, two of I, us. Yeah. I and I, But I think as a filmmaker that that's really important because all you're ever trying to create on, I, I hate the word create, sorry. Um, all you're ever trying to um, make on screen is a representation of honesty. And so I feel like, how am I going to get honesty out of a cast and a crew if I'm not honest myself about mm-hmm. my own insecurities or about, you know, why I've made this choice? Or I also think that one of the other best tools that a director can have is just to say, I don't know, you know, like rather than sitting there and go, oh, it's got to be like this, like this and pretend that you know everything. Like there's nothing wrong with 
you know, sitting back and saying, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer yet. What do you think? You know, and then have them tell you. And then, you know, have your DP tell you or your actor tell you. And then you go, oh, yes, 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 yes. I see what you're doing. Yes, but, you know, um, but what if you did this too or whatever? Because it's actually like, I think, physically impossible for a director to know every answer to every question that they're going to get asked um, just because you, you've got such a, a limited time frame, you know, and you prioritize things differently. Yeah? And anyone in a position of leadership, um, when you remove ego, then you allow people to contribute and you can actually then, in my experience, at least pick the ideas that work best for the story you're trying to tell. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing that a director should do, and you're so right, is they should try and make themselves the dumbest person in the room, you know, and and I think that so much of what we do is in pre-production, and if you cast the right actors and you, cast, and you, you know, cast a great uh, production designer and cinematographer, and you talk to them about, you know, what this movie should be and how you want it to make an audience feel and how you want it to look and all of this kind of jazz, um, hopefully by the time you get to set, you can sit back and just do very little, you know, because you, you go in there and you've got a great actor. They're going to know what they want to do in the scene a lot of the time. And so they'll go, well, how about this? How about this? How about this? And you don't have to say anything, you know, like if, if it's working, you just go, I think that that is fantastic. That absolutely works. Are you, are you happy with that? You know, and they'll go, yep. And then you look to the DP who watched the block. What are you thinking for coverage? And if it's a DP who you've picked and you've spoken about the vision of the film enough, they might go, oh, wide over here on a track. And then, you know, because the actor walks this way, then that will be their close up. And then we just need to pick up something over there. And then you'll think about it and go, you know what? That really works. I don't have anything to add to that. That's um, not always how it works. In fact, it rarely works exactly like that. It's a version of that usually where I go, yes, but, you know, like, yeah, that's really good. But rather than have the wide over here, I think we should have it over here because I love your idea of them ending in a close-up. But I think because the character loses the power in the scene, let's actually have them end in a wide, you know? So they'll walk away from the lens rather than towards it. And so, yeah, so you just build like that. Sorry to continue on this bit. No, it's fine. All the preparation that's happened beforehand, and by the time everyone's kind of, you know, you always have, you always have established shorthands with certain people that you work with in the crew. Um, of course, yep. you know, Accenture was another thing altogether, although in that instance, thankfully, you had Emma Booth as well. So you had somebody that you knew there. But yep. and you can say, no, Jose, you don't know what you're talking about, because yes, I'm not a <laughs> I'm not in the industry, but for any of those unplanned mistakes or accidents that can occur, you then yep. aren't worrying about what setups. You're rather going, you know what? Everyone else knows what to do. This has now happened and I can focus my energy on trying to actually turn this obstacle into perhaps a way that improves the story. 100%. Like it, it's amazing. You know, I mean, you have to be prepared to compromise. And so often the compromise you come up with is better than what you planned on doing, you know? And so, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I always encourage actors um, to do one for the floor, you know? Like, you try and talk about it as much as possible so we know where we're going to go with with the scene. And I go, look, we've, we've got that. It's absolutely great. That works. Like, just, what if you try one like this? And it might be terrible and it might not work, but if that's the case, we just, no one in the world is ever going to see it, but we might come up with gold. And um and, you know, 10% of the time you do uh, that one of the last scenes in um, Hounds of Love where uh, Ashley Cummings and Emma Booth are confronting each other and Ashley says a bit of a monologue 
to her. Yes. That was not written. There was no um, dialogue written in that scene. It was all supposed to be done in looks. And I just wasn't getting it. It just, yeah. I was not, the scene wasn't doing for me what it was supposed to. I wasn't feeling that Emma was being challenged enough by um, Ashley's character. And so I was talking to Ashley and Ashley rightly said, well, Ben, I don't know how to do it anymore without speaking. And I just said, well, speak. She said, well, what do I say? And I said, say anything you want. And then she did. And one take, and then we're out, we're in the, you know, we're out of the movie. She was incredible. Yeah. I have so many other questions. And for another time, you know, if I could ever have you back, we'd definitely chat yeah, a lot about Hounds of Love. Um, what I wanted to continue with is I actually came across this really beautiful piece in the West Australian from July 2018, written by your oh, longtime yes. friend and former Curtin. Daniel Emerson. I had breakfast with him yesterday. <laughs> well, I reached out to Daniel, um, who oh, very- Yes, I think he told me. Yeah, did, <laughs> okay. he, did he get back to you? He did. He very generously replied. And I took this- um, for verbatim when I want to read to you because from yeah. memory Ben was the only one who wasn't in any way overawed by the realities of filmmaking the early mornings late nights basically long days on set the constant revision of scripts lugging heavy equipment around begging people to act for free or carry out numerous behind the scene tasks to make a production work Ben would just throw himself into it and his enthusiasm was infectious and I, again, thank you so much, Daniel, for your time and generosity with what you provided. A lovely thing. Is there an anecdote that you can recall from your uni days that you're willing to share? Oh, God. Um, probably so many, you know, from the first film that I ever directed, one of the three people I was making with, we shot it on my parents' farm. He hit a kangaroo on the way. And um, look, nothing particular stands out. It was all just so hard. <laughs> Fair Sorry, enough. I can't be more specific. No, I don't know. Yeah. Please look. I'm going to add to that that he also stated, "I like noticing in Serbia that nothing had changed in that respect." And this brings me back to the article that I started this conversation yeah. with in 2018 that Dan wrote. Now, yeah. the article is written from a place of genuineness, in my opinion, that celebrates yeah. your passion for cinema, love of storytelling, from the perspective not only of a close friend but a brother-like figure and his absolute admiration and respect for you in achieving a boyhood dream, as he put it, of intergalactic battles and celluloid triumph. Um, <laughs> I wanted to know, do you feel that if that boyhood dream has been accomplished or has it evolved into something bigger that you aspire to and what might that look like? I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's a really interesting um, question. And I think the whole prospect of ever making a movie seems so impossible that I um I didn't really think much beyond that. The boyhood dream was just to make a movie, you know, like I didn't didn't think or plan on having a career in Hollywood or or anything like that. I just wanted to make a movie. And um so now I've done that um a couple of times. I guess the dream is just to make another one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and then um then make another one after that. And, and it's not much bigger, you know, like I, I don't have, um, I don't, you know, I, I don't have visions of myself walking down any particular red carpet or anything. I just want to keep being allowed to make movies. And I guess, I guess if, if, you know, a, a thing that um, I don't know if I've ever externalized before, but, you know, I'd like to make another one that, that I wrote that I can feel, as close to the characters as, as I did in Hounds of Love. So yeah, I just want to make another movie. <laughs> no, that's, that's beautiful. Look, it makes me think of, and I'm sure a lot of directors 
feel that. But I always go back to Guillermo del Toro, um, who is, I absolutely love, love that guy's work. And, you know, he always says, I approach every project as if it's going to be my last um, because there is no guarantee. So I, I, I understand what you're saying. So let's jump from extinction and yeah. leap into the evolution of clickbait. Yeah, sure. For anyone listening, if like me and Daniel Emerson, um, who has confirmed that he hasn't seen clickbait yet, is still sitting in your Netflix to watch list as, as mine is, hopefully Ben will help us move it up the queue. So how did you become involved with this Netflix miniseries? Um, well, it was a kind of cool story, actually. I was in Los Angeles towards the end of 2019 um, prepping a movie that actually ended up getting killed by COVID. Um, right. So that was that was a real shame. Um, and I just got a, a text from my manager uh, or an email from my manager with a, with a script attached, um, which was the first episode of Clickbait, saying that they were looking for, um, you know, they had most of the directors, but they were looking for one more and my name had come up. Would I want to read the script? And I just said, sure. And I read the script and I loved the script, which is so rare, um, so rare to get a good script. And um, I just thought, wow, this is awesome. Um, I'm so stoked they thought of me for this. And then I um, I uh, had a meeting with Tony Ayres, who's the showrunner and co-creator, and um, and we just jammed on it. And then he he offered me the gig. So it was really as simple as that. And um, and it was a kind of fun experience because with movies, um, I've been attached to so many that just fall over at the last minute because an yeah. actor gets a better offer or something the financier pulls out or whatever. But it was kind of cool for me. Like when I, when I, by the time I had my interview with Tony, he was already in pre-production for the, for the first block of the show. So it was a real deal. And so it was just kind of neat to say yes to something and just have it guaranteed. And um, kind of two months later, I was, I was in Melbourne prepping my block. I can't help this because my brain while you're talking is constantly trying to make connections to everything that I've been reading. And I know I said I wouldn't, I'd skip over extinction um, as much as I, I personally did enjoy the movie, but I have to ask because you mentioned, you know, sometimes things can fall over at the last minute, especially with an act if they're getting a better offer. Um, yep. James McAvoy at one point was attached with extinction. Yep. Um, yep. What happened there? Or are you allowed to not talk about that? Oh, look, no, it was just, um, I think it was just a timing thing. I think we wanted to go to, too quickly and it was just um yeah but i mean he's a lovely guy and um yeah no nothing nothing bad happened it was just one of those things that we just couldn't make it work <laughs> beautiful thank you for that uh, look i i i love michael Pena. he you know the, everyone in there was great. fantastic he is brilliant he's another lovely guy as well with so jumping back to clickbait how much yeah. creative control did you have from script to edit on the episodes that you directed which are episodes five and six um, that's a really good question. Um, so you get, as a director, you get, uh, traditionally you get a lot less control in television. Um, yes. but this was sort of a director's dream because every episode was from a um, different character's point of view. And so Tony, when I asked Tony, I said, like, how do you want me to shoot this? He just said, well, however you want, so long as you focus on the character you're supposed to focus on too. I don't mind if every episode feels a little bit different, um, because, that they should because we're looking at the crime from a different perspective. And mm-hmm. so I got a lot of freedom in that. And again, uh, Tony and um, the other producers, Tom and Joe, were really generous in asking my thoughts on the script. And so, you know, I definitely got to put my fingerprints in places of the script and had, you know, a, a lot to do with 
you know, various bits and pieces of, of rewrites. And I, um, I, I didn't end up shooting anything in that that I didn't want to, you know, like I thought, um, yeah, they were really considerate and inclusive, which um, was lovely. And then, you know, so you shoot it and then you get, um, you know, a, a week or two on each episode to do a director's cut, which isn't very often. And, um, and you cut it and then you hand it off to the showrunners and Netflix and everything, and then they, they recut it. So, um, and it ends up a little bit different. Um, and that's just the nature of the game. Yeah. Um, look, and filming primarily in and around Melbourne, um, some scenes filmed yeah. on location in Oakland and the San Francisco Bay Area. So go the Warriors. Yeah. Um, yeah. Were, were the episodes that you directed um, all filmed in Melbourne? Uh, yeah, everything I filmed was in Melbourne. We have a few like wide shots, like of, of cars driving and, you know, just establishing shots. Because in one of my episodes, we go to Sacramento. And so there's a, a, a drone shot of Sacramento. And uh, I obviously didn't shoot those. They were picked up. Everything right. I personally filmed was filmed in Melbourne. And I, I read somewhere that um, the production, and correct me if I'm wrong, had to kind of go on a hiatus because of um, a lockdown yeah, in Melbourne at some of point. COVID. So did I that delay really, release or? Uh, I, th I think it did delay release. I got really fortunate in my um, instance though, because I, I wrapped on the Friday and was meant to start post on the Monday in Melbourne. And then the production shut down. And But I'd, I'd already got my episodes in the can. So I came back to Western Australia and went and hid out on my parents' farm when everyone, you know, when COVID was first a thing. And I was able to do all of the posts um, remotely. And oh, so it didn't affect me at all, but I, you know, the production had to, had to, you know, take hiatus for a couple of months. While a feature and episodic content intended for binging, um, as in the case yep. of clickbait, they're two different beasts altogether. How did your Netflix experience this time around compare to your first foray with them on Extinction? I mean, it was good both times. Um, Netflix are really good to work with, um, but uh, you know, as again, just a blow-in director on um on clickbait i had very little to do with them okay. i had a bit of a brief um i had a brief but the way it usually went is that was um the you know the producers would talk to netflix about any anything that they might be worried about in the episodes and then i i just get the feedback so um yeah so it was very different whereas a movie is much more um a director's medium and so you know, in a movie, you'll end up dealing with the studio as a director, but in television, unless you're the lead director, which I was not, um, you know, you take a little bit of a backseat. But yeah, my my experience was was good. Beautiful. Um, look, do you have a favourite of the eight episodes that were um, made for the series? Oh well, obviously, you know, <laughs> no, they're they're all they're all really good for different reasons. Um, you know, they they all are. I found myself really engaged in each one for um a uh, for for different reasons. No, okay. Uh, look, and that's it because I'm I'm really trying to tread carefully because it is only you know it only was released not even uh, three weeks ago. Um, yeah. And I hope people do check it out. And it is on my queue. And uh, I'll put it out to Daniel Emerson that um, let me know when you've watched it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Cool. So finally, we get to the treble where all light tends to go. Yep. Were you approached for this directly, or did you pitch for it? No, um, I didn't have to pitch for it, which was great. Um, it was a project which had been around for a while, um, written by Robert Knott, and Robert and I have the same manager. Right. And um, 
And so then he sent me the script and I was like, this is awesome. This is like, so me, this is just to my taste. And then um, me and Robert jammed on the script and developed it, did all of this. And then um, it was Josh, my manager, who's also a producer on it, who suggested that I met Hopper Penn because I would like him and I was in LA at the time. Then I met Hopper and I did like him and Josh was like, what about him for light? And I was like, yeah, you know, he'd be, he'd be awesome. And it was a yeah, long, slow process of building it up from there. I think I've been attached to that for about four years. Right. Well, what what can four. you, what can you tell us about, um, about the actual um, story itself? Well, it's based on the book by David Joy. Um, similar story, same, but different. Um, I think we're not quite as bleak as the book perhaps. Um, but you know, it's about a, a, a guy, um, uh, living in the Appalachian Mountains, who who's from a family of kind of crime bosses. You know, his great granddaddy was making moonshine, and um, anyway, that's always been the case. And now he is sort of the main meth dealer in and about this, you know, county. And um, and yeah, and he wants his son to um, take over the business, but the son has other ideas. Right. Um, look, Variety State of the Production scheduled for November. So how long yep. were you spending or how long was pre-prep? Um, oh, I haven't started pre-prep yet. Oh, so sorry. I, okay, right. Yeah, so I fly, I fly out on Sunday to do pre-production, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, how well, much I'm already, time? you know, talk, talking to the actors and already looking at location pictures and interviewing crew and, um, yeah. What process do you find um, most exciting and perhaps most exhausting out of the three? Well, I'll, I'll say the three stages, you know, pre-production, production and post um production is the most exhausting and the hardest um and post i find the most rewarding and um and i really like it because production you've got so many opinions you've got so many people and so many questions and you're working such long difficult hours um and then post it's just you in a dark room with an editor and with your pictures and you're basically just rewriting the story with images and um, that is without a doubt my um my favorite part of it all now, it's huge that you're going to work with Billy Bob Thornton and Robin Wright. I'm sure you're excited. Mm. And as you mentioned, probably to a degree nervous. Yep. But hopefully to ease some of that, you've got Michael McDermott who photographed Hounds of Love um, yep. and he's DPing this. Any chance you'll be bringing Emma Booth into the film to complete the trifecta of your collaborative partnerships? Watch this space. <laughs> okay. That was my attempt to try to get a little bit more. Um, yeah. <laughs> are there any yep. other works that you can maybe share? I know there was something about a possible TV series with uh, Zach Hilditch. Um, is that still on the table? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, not that specific one, but okay. strangely, I'm, I'm catching up with Zach this afternoon. Um, and so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see, you know, Zach has been one of my best buddies since uni days and um, we went to film school together and uh yeah, um, you know, the, I've got my finger in a lot of pies and we'll just have to see what sticks. No, beautiful, man. Look, I'm incredibly grateful for the time you've given me today and for indulging me in these questions. It's a pleasure. Thank you for making it so easy and casual. Uh, look, I, I really hope it felt that way. And I truly feel that we catharted together when we were discussing, yes. you know, the, uh, <laughs> the emotional aspects of this. Because I am curious about what drives a person, you know, especially creatively. Have a safe flight, mate. Thank you. To the audiences streaming this on their favorite podcatchers, I hope you've enjoyed the journey we've taken with Ben. Um, and I'd just like to close out to honor the untimely passing of legendary comedian Norm MacDonald with a quote that rings true for me. Comedy is surprises. So if you're intending to make somebody laugh and they don't laugh, that's funny. Um, and that's been me for most of my life. So rest in peace, <laughs> sir. And deepest condolences to his family and loved ones. 
and to everyone else. Until next time, ciao. Thanks for listening to Diary of a Crowdfunded Film. Subscribe to hear all future episodes. And if you enjoyed the show, leave us a review. For more info, please visit Diary of a Crowdfunded Film on Facebook.